our time in the Word this morning, I'm going to ask we go before the Lord in prayer once again. Lord, we, we do join our voices with the cherubim and seraphim who cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Lord, You are in a category all by Yourself. You are utterly unlike anything else that exists. You are utterly unlike us. You are the Creator of all things. You are the eternal God who is from everlasting to everlasting. You are the sovereign King who reigns over every square inch of the universe that You have made. It is right and it is true that there is no one like You. And as we ponder that, Lord, we think about that, we realize, what are we? As the psalmist said, what are we, Lord, that You are mindful of us? Why would You allow us to live in the splendor and the beauty of Your creation? Why do You allow us to abide before You in our sinfulness? Why do You patiently bear with us? Why do You love us? Why would You call us to be Your people? Lord, as we think about who You are and what we are, it is a great mystery. And Lord, we recognize this morning that in the majesty and the holiness of who You are, we realize our own unworthiness, our own unholiness. And that is why we come before You, Lord, so grateful this morning. We humble ourselves before You. We come in great humility and gratitude because You have poured out upon us such a great salvation that You sent Your very Son into this world, that He took on human flesh, that He walked around in our skin, that He knew our burdens and our pains and our sorrows, and yet He lived utterly perfectly. But He knew our experience. And then, out of the greatness of His love, out of the greatness of His humility, He laid His life down as an atoning sacrifice for us. And by His blood You have washed us so that sinners now become Your children. Lord, it is a mystery to us. And as Your children now, Lord, we don't cower away, we don't, we don't retreat, we don't run, but You tell us, you, you incite us to come boldly before Your throne of grace. And so this morning, Lord, we want to do that. We want to come boldly before Your throne and make our requests known because You are a loving God, a loving Father to Your children. And Lord, this morning we want to pray especially for our country. We grieve all that is happening in our country right now. We continue to pray, Lord, for the coronavirus and, and we pray, Lord, specifically for the abatement of the virus. Lord, that it would, it would stop dead in its tracks. That there would be no more illness. That there would be no more disease. There would be no more suffering. Lord, we pray that we might return back to normal, not because we want the American dream or we want to have a normal life, Lord, so that we might glorify You. We might have the ability, Lord, to come into this place unhindered to be Your people. All of us. Gathered together as one church, as one people united around the Gospel filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We do continue to pray, Lord, for our medical professionals who are serving on the front lines treating this disease. We pray that You would provide all that they need physically and, and materially and emotionally. We pray for our government leaders as they lead the response to how 
how we are to respond to this disease well. That they would help both medically in, in helping those caring for the sick and for those afflicted. But also, Lord, as they help to bring our economy back, as they, as they make the, the political changes that allow us to return back to normal life, we pray you give them wisdom from on high. Guide and direct their steps. Or we take comfort in the fact that the kings in your hands are like water. That you direct them wherever you will them to go. Lord, we also pray this morning for the racial turmoil that is afflicting our country. And we do want to pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially of, of different races and different ethnicities who are anguished over the injustices that are taking place and have, ta- have taken place in our country even this week. But I pray specifically for Pastor Joe over at um, New Bethlehem Baptist Church this morning as he seeks to preach the gospel to his people and give them hope and encouragement and help them to see, Lord, the solution that the gospel provides, that it is the thing that tears down the dividing wall of hostility, that it is able to reconcile Jew and Gentile, black and white, man and woman, Democrat and Republican. Lord, we need the gospel. We need the gospel to be proclaimed. It is only in Christ that we find unity. It's only in Christ that we find justice. It's only in Christ that we find mercy and grace and healing and hope. And so we pray that today your churches, the gospel, would be proclaimed in white churches and black churches, in Asian churches and Hispanic churches, in churches of mixed races, Lord, in every church, Lord, that preaches the gospel, and the gospel go forth as a comfort today to your people. May it build us up, Lord, so that we might know how to respond in these times. That it might give us wisdom so that we are able to walk in a godly way, in a way that, that is an example to others. In a way that brings about greater holiness in our own life and encourages other brothers and sisters to continue walking in holiness. But I pray also this morning for our, especially our brothers and sisters who serve in, in law enforcement. We pray, Lord, that you would help them. Lord, we know that as Christians, our, our chief goal is to honor you. And so we pray that as they do their jobs, they would honor Christ. That they would be voices of peace and reconciliation. Help them to, to keep their oath and to follow the, the duties, to execute the job that they've been given. Lord, Lord, to do this in a God-honoring way. Use them, Lord, as agents of hope and of mediation and of peace. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom to walk according to the principles of your kingdom. Lord, help us. We need you. We've always known that, but we maybe feel it a little bit more today than we have in the past. And so we pray that you administer to us. We are thankful, Lord, for this time now as we are about to go into the word. For your word is a balm to our wounds. It brings healing to the hurts that we feel and experience. It gives us hope for today and for the future. It reminds us of your promises and blessings and of the great inheritance that is ours in Christ. And so we pray for Dick as he brings your word to us this morning, Lord, that you would bring that word of truth to us, that, it would, that we would receive it, Lord, as it really is. It is the word of life that brings us life, that brings us light, that gives us hope. We pray you would anoint him, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to speak in truth and power to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dick is going to be preaching for us this morning. We thought they were going to be heading back to Michigan this week, and I wanted to take... One last opportunity to use him selfishly to give me a week to rest up and recuperate mentally and spiritually. And so Dick's going to bring the word to us. Come, brother. (laughs) Thank you. It's good to be with you. Uh, As Jim said, the, the plan was 
that we were to leave Thursday to go back to Michigan. But uh, we talked to our daughter in Michigan, and uh, she said she's uncomfortable with us coming back yet. Uh, so we, you're stuck with us for a couple more weeks anyway. So uh, we may be here the rest of the summer. We don't know. So we're just uh, trusting the Lord and resting on him and believing him for his timing. And we'll, we'll trust him for how it's all going to work out. Um, as Jim mentioned, I, I spoke here a few weeks ago and looked at the calendar. It was March 22nd. That's 10 weeks ago that I spoke here. And it is a message I will never forget uh, because most of you weren't here. <laughs> uh, there were a few people here, the musicians and some others helping with the sound. And I'm looking at a camera and preaching the message. It was, uh, that was interesting, to say the least. Uh, I'm going to give a quote here. Uh, I'm, I might get into trouble about it. I'm, I'm pretty sure Jim has never quoted Lenin before in one of his messages. I know I've never quoted Lenin before in one of my messages, but I remember this quote from uh, Lenin. And he said, There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. And as we've looked back over these last few weeks, I think that's probably your estimation. That's my estimation. Decades have happened. There is so much that has fundamentally changed in our country in the last ten weeks. Things that are not going to go back. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you if you're thinking, well, in a few more weeks we'll be back to the normal. That is gone. Uh, It won't be the same. Things will be different. Things have changed, and it's not going to be the same. Uh, A lot has changed in those ten weeks. But one thing has not changed, and that is the Word of God. That has not changed at all. If anything, it has become more relevant to us now than it has ever been before. As I thought about the passage that I'm going to be speaking on today, Psalm 57, I thought that was written nearly 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. And it is just as relevant today as it was when it was written then. God's Word speaks to us. God's Word is real. God's Word is constant. God's Word doesn't change at all. God's Word is applicable today to our situation. We are not in any unique situation in that sense. You think back over 3,000 years of history, there's been lots of things that have happened things similar to the events that we're going through today. God's Word is still the same. God's Word still speaks to people. God's Word is still dependable and reliable, and we can trust in it. Well, let me read it. Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. 
For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray just one more time, please. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is quick and powerful. Lord, I have no expectation that what I'm going to say today is going to have much effect on anyone here. But Lord, my expectation is what you are going to do in people's hearts and lives. Lord, my expectation is that you're going to take your word. You're going to apply it to us. You're going to speak to each individual here, young or old, small or little, big and strong, whoever. Everyone will hear from you today. We trust your spirit to move among us in a great and mighty way. And we commit the time to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's take a look at Psalm 57. I'm going to start with the uh, introduction at the very top. Uh, it's there for a purpose. There's no mistakes in the Scripture. There's no things in the Scripture that are irrelevant or don't mean anything. So if the Holy Spirit felt compelled to include this, this is something we need to take a look at as well. To the choir master. so this is obviously a song. We know that because this is the Psalms that we're in, and the Psalms are songs, and they were sung. And so this is a song that can be sung. We'll wait till next week for Bruce to come up with the music to this, and he's prepared. Okay. And it's according to Do Not Destroy. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means. Uh, it's some type of musical term, we think, 
but nobody can say really definitively that that's what it is, but probably something like that. And it's a MCTAM. Uh, we also don't know what that is. Uh, that's been something that's been lost uh, to history. Uh, we have some speculation as to what it might be, but really not sure. It, but it's some type of, again, musical or literary term. Now, I can tell you that there are six of these in the Psalms, and we're in the midst of them, uh, starting with Psalm 56 and through Psalm 60. Those five Psalms are all miktams, and also Psalm 16 is also a miktam. Whatever it is, they are those. They are the only ones in the, in the Psalms. Uh, it's so, it's a miktam of David. Now, we know who David is, and I think we tend to forget about the fact that David <coughs> is a very good musician. Uh, we tend to think of him as king, we tend to think of him as warrior and a fighting man and that sort of thing, but he was a musician, very accomplished musician. If you recall, that's how he got into Saul's presence in the first place, is that he was brought in to play the lyre for, for Saul when Saul was having some of his uh, episodes. And it was to calm, calm him down, and David did a very good job of that. So David is a, is a musician as well. And it says, when he fled from Saul... Now, we know the story there, too, that he <clears throat> fled from Saul because Saul was out to kill him. Now, why is Saul out to kill him? Uh, Saul, if they could just we'll quickly go through the history here, the people demanded a king, and, and so uh, the Lord said, that's fine, we'll give you a king. They gave him he gave the people Saul as king. Saul quickly displeased the Lord and sinned against the Lord, God said, no, I will not have him as king. And, and the Lord said to Samuel, go tell Saul that he's not going to be king anymore, that I've anointed a new king. And Samuel went and anointed David as king. Now, Samuel didn't tell Saul who was going to be the new king, obviously, because Saul would surely go out and try to kill him if he knew who he was. But Saul figures it out. And eventually he realizes that David, is, he's going to be the man. Because David goes into battle for Israel, and we know the chant that the people said about them. Saul killed his thousands, and David, what, killed his tens of thousands. So the people are acknowledging David as a great man. And Saul sees, you know, he, he's the one. He's the one that's going to be the new king. And twice in the palace, Saul takes a javelin and throws it at David, tending to kill him. Now, uh, David is a much better man than I am. I can tell you that because after the first time, I would have left. I, but David stays and Saul does it twice. But after the second time, David understands it's not good for me to stay here. And so he flees from Saul. And it says, in the cave. Now, there's a couple of incidences of caves and David in the Old Testament, uh, both in 1 Samuel uh, the one is in 1 Samuel 22. This is the cave of Abdullam. And this is where, where uh, David goes initially when he flees from Saul. And he then calls his family to come and join him there, because obviously his family's in danger as well. So his family comes and joins him there. 
And then a bunch of other men come and join him there. Now, I've always thought it was interesting, the men that came to join him, they were people, they were men that were in distress, in debt, or bitter in soul. And I thought, those are not the kind of people I think I would like joining me, but they were the ones that David had come and join him. And he ended up with about 400 men there in this cave. Now, Saul begins chasing David and rest of 1 Samuel 22, 23, and into 24 is, is Saul chasing David all over the place. And we come to another cave in 1 Samuel 24. Uh, in this situation, uh, Saul has gone out with about 3,000 men, 3,000 chosen men of Israel, 3,000 of the best fighting men are going after David and these guys that are with him. And they come to a a place where they're they're looking for David. Saul needs to go to the bathroom. So he goes to a cave to, as the scripture says, relieve himself. And while he's in the cave, he doesn't realize, but David and those 400 men are also in this cave. And the men with David say, kill him. He's right here. He's defenseless. There's, there's nobody to protect him. His army's out there. He's in here. We're in here running through. If, if you don't tell us, we'll kill him. And, and David will have none of it. No, this is God's anointed. We will not do that. But David sneaks up behind him, cuts off some of his robe. And when Saul goes outside, David holds it up to him then and says, you know, I had a chance to kill you and I didn't. This proves to you that I have not, I've done nothing wrong to you. You have no reason to try to kill me. And for a short time, anyway, Saul repents of what he's doing and, and leaves and, and lets David alone for a brief time. But this, as you know, the story goes on and Saul continues to chase him. Now, this psalm can be divided uh, easily into two parts because, again, it is a song and we've got a verse and a chorus, a verse and a chorus. The first four verses are the first verse of the song. And then verse 5 is the chorus. And then we've got verses 6 through 10 is the second verse of the psalm. And then verse 11 is the chorus. Now, if you notice, verse 5 and verse 11 are exactly the same. So that, that's the chorus. Now, you, uh, you could look at the psalm that way and divide it up into the two parts. I'm going to do it a little bit different than that, and I hope it's not going to end up being confusing to you, but I think it will help you in understanding the psalm and making an application of the psalm. I'm going to divide it into three parts, and we're going to look at three different sections of the the psalm. Now, the first section is verses... Four and six. We're going to look at verses four and six separately. And verses four and six are what I would call the problem. What is the problem that David is facing, and why is he uh, writing this psalm? Now, I'm going to emphasize this, and I'm going to say it more than once through the, the message this morning. I want us to be very clear about the fact that this is a very real problem. Okay. I think our difficulty is when we look at this psalm and we look at the situation, what we're looking at it from history, and we know the end result. We know that a few chapters after this, after 
chapter 24, Saul is killed in battle. David becomes king. He rules over Israel for 40 years. He's one of the greatest kings that Israel has ever had. We know the result of this. And so we have a tendency to look at this and say, well, what's the big deal? Why is he so upset? This this is all going to turn out. In the midst of this, David is not so sure about that. This is a very real problem. Now, I want us to keep that in mind because obviously I'm going to make application of this to us. In the midst of the difficulty and trial and problem and heartache or whatever it is that you're going through, that is a very real problem. Don't let anyone ever come to you and say, oh, that's no big deal. It is a big deal. If, if you're experiencing fear, if you're experiencing concern for the future, if you're having heartache over loss or, or whatever, that is very real. Now, the, the thing, though, that when we look at this, we are looking at this exactly how God looks at it. Have you ever thought about that? We look at this psalm and we say, well, what's the big deal? We know the result. We know how it's going to turn out. We know how everything is going to end up. That's how God views it. God is looking at our difficulties right now. God is looking at our trials right now. And he's seeing the same thing. I I see the end. I see the result. I know how this is all going to turn out. Trust me in all of this. And we say, well, yeah, but wait a minute, God. This is a real problem here. God is saying, yes, I know. And I think what the psalm tells us is that David, he grasped that idea. And that's what I want us to be able to see here today. To grasp that idea that with this, though it's a very real problem, There is something else that we need to see and understand in this. So how did David see it? Okay, let's look at verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. Now we know this is not literal. He's not saying, uh, you know, I'm concerned about the lions roaming around about me here. Now it is true he's in the wilderness And there are lions out there in the wilderness. But, I mean, he's with 400 men. There's a big camp here. I doubt seriously there's one lion who's going to walk into this camp. The lions are staying far away, I'm sure. So he's he's not talking about a literal thing here. He's not talking about actual lions that are appearing. Well, what is he talking about? The children of man. That's who he's concerned about. These lions, these fiery beasts, they're children of men. And in this particular place, one particular man and the soldiers that are with him. Those children of men, because he says, uh, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Now, we know he's not talking about soldiers with actual spears coming out of their mouths and or tongues that have swords coming out. He's not. What he's saying is that these are real soldiers 
They have real spears, they have real arrows, and they have real swords. And if they catch me, they are going to kill me. And he understood the situation. This, you know, he is fleeing for his life. He understands what's going on here. Verse 6, they set a net for my steps. Now, I think most of us, maybe you've seen nature films or something like that where they show the situation of them catching an animal. And you can picture that they set a net out in an area and they put some bait out in the center of the net. And then they wait for the animal to come in to take the bait and something is pulled and the net goes up and the animal is caught. That's what David is saying here. I have to watch wherever I go. I have to watch my every step. Because if I make one misstep, I'm going to be caught in a net. They're going to grab me. There's going to be no way of escape for me. And again, my end is sure at this point. Uh, He has to look everywhere he goes because they are coming after him. He says, my soul was bowed down. Now, you get the idea here of just weariness. This, This problem has been before him for now for some time. And he is just weary with it. He's weary with the constant having to look around to see where they are, who's coming after me, how is this going to affect me. It's a day after day after day after day thing. And I think many of us can relate to that when the problems and difficulties and trials that we're going through, it's just, it's day after day after day. And we become weary with this. It's as if the weight of the world is is upon us. And that's what David is feeling here. He said, now they've also, they've dug a pit for me. Now again, the idea is that he's going to make a misstep and fall into this pit, not be able to get out, and they've, they've captured him. Now he takes some comfort in the fact that they fell into the pit. And so he, he can take some comfort in that. But again... This is a very real problem. I'm sure David is thinking to himself, how is this going to turn out? Did I really hear from God? Was it really God that spoke to me and told me I was going to be king? Did did Samuel have it right? Was I the one that's supposed to become king? Maybe it is one of my brothers that's supposed to be king. Maybe Samuel got it wrong. I'm sure all of those thoughts were going through his head. That maybe there's some mistake here. You know, this is not, I'm not going to become king. I'm going to end up being dead. I mean, the king, the current king is chasing after me with his army. You know, this is not turning out the way I thought it was going to turn out. And there may be people here that are facing some type of very real problem like that. Maybe it's a fear of the virus. Maybe you're just, it just really concerns you. It's just it's bothering you. You think about it almost every day and concerned about what's going to happen to you. Maybe because of the events that have been taking place in our country here that's affected your job situation. 
And maybe there's some concern there about the future, what's going to happen. Maybe for some of the young people here, they're concerned about, am I going to go back to school in the fall? How are, are things going to be normal again? How, what's, what's my future going to be like? And maybe those thoughts are with us, with us, you know, every day. How are we going to cope? Now, there may be no one chasing us literally with a gun that's trying to kill us. But again, there could be some very real problems that we're facing. So that leads to the second point. What do we do when we're in that kind of situation? We do what David did. What did David do? David prayed. We'll go back up to verse 1, read verses 1 through 3. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. All until the storms of destruction pass by. He's asking God to have mercy on him. Now, it certainly is a legitimate prayer to pray. If we are in a difficult situation, is to come to God and God, please have mercy on me. Please do something. That is a very legitimate prayer to pray. Now, by, by praying, we're acknowledging two things. First, the thing that we're acknowledging is that God is in control. God is in control of this situation. God is in control of your situation. God is in control of my situation. We can trust him for that, that he is in control. Now, I was thinking, you know, if back to when kids were in school, if you had a problem with the teacher, your son or daughter were coming home and saying, I'm just having issues with this teacher, it seemed like every day. And maybe you go to the teacher and it doesn't get resolved, and what do you do about it? Well, you, you know, you could talk to your friends, you could talk to these, the mothers and the fathers of the other children in the class, you but really what you should do is what? Go talk to the principal. You talk to the person that's in control. to someone that can do something about that. That's the second thing that we acknowledge when we come to God in prayer, that God can do something about this. He is in control, therefore he can do something about it. So we look at him and we come to him and we ask him for mercy, just as David said. And he says, my soul takes refuge in you. In you, my soul takes refuge. And I thought about that because it seems hardly a day goes by in the news that we don't hear about some group of refugees somewhere some group of refugees that are fleeing something from somewhere, either a war or a religious persecution or famine or problems of some kind. People are, I forget the number, I was going to look it up, but then I forgot to look it up. But there are literally, I think, like a hundred million people in the world that are refugees at this point. People that are fleeing from something. You know, I'm not going to get into the immigration policy and the immigration issue here in our country, but when I see people 
coming to the United States, when I see these people from Central America fleeing unbelievable conditions in their country there where there's tremendous violence and corruption and that sort of thing, and they're coming here as refugees, they're seeking refuge. If I was a father there and, and had a family, I would certainly look at that. You know, my family's in danger. My family's having being threatened. I'm going to seek a place of refuge for them where perhaps there's some peace where they, I, they're not chance they're going to get shot and killed or something evil happened to them. So we understand this concept of refuge. That we are seeking refuge from the conditions that we're in, from the problem that we're facing, from whatever the situation is. And, and David said, my soul finds you as a refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. And if you're like me, the thing I thought of right away was when Jesus was standing over Jerusalem. And what did he say? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would, take it, would have taken your children as a mother hen takes her chicks. And that's the picture here. I'm going to hide the people under my wings. You can, you can picture, well, I think it's a little more difficult for us because we're not as agrarian or agricultural society as they were back then. I don't think many of us have chickens in our yard. Maybe you do, but most of us probably don't. But the picture here is of a mother hen that has got a bunch of chicks and she's looking up at the sky and she sees a thunderstorm coming or she sees a hawk flying around and she gathers those little chicks under her wings and she's going to protect them. They can seek refuge there. You can, you know, you can just feel these little chicks rubbing up against their mother's feathers and just kind of peeking out, looking up at the sky and, and knowing, though, that they are safe there because the mother is going to protect them. They are under her wings. We are under God's wings. We can seek refuge in him. He will do this in exactly the same way a mother hen protects her chicks. He will protect us. <clears throat> Till the storms of destruction pass by. The storms of destruction will pass by. And I know, because I, I can speak from experience, I've been in situations where it doesn't seem like the storm of destruction is ever going to pass by. It just seems like it took forever and it just was a day-to-day, -day again, weariness of fighting the battle and facing whatever it is that you had to face. I, I understand that. And it doesn't seem like this storm is going to pass by, but we have the assurance from God's Word. Yes, it will. It will pass by. He said in verse 2, I cry out to God Most High. And I think here he's just acknowledging God's holiness, God's majesty, God's glory. This is the great and awesome God. We need at times to think about that. We need to think about who this God is that we are serving. 
that this is the great high God. He fulfills his purpose for me. David knew deep down in his heart he would be king. God will fulfill his purpose for me. Even in the midst of this difficulty, even in the midst of these soldiers chasing me, I've got confidence. God will fulfill his purpose for me. And he will fulfill his purpose for you and for me also. Every one of us here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a purpose. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible talks about the church being a body and that we are all part of that body, that we all play a part in it, that we all have a purpose. God didn't put you here by accident. God had a purpose and a plan for you. This wasn't by chance that you are here, that we have a purpose and God will fulfill it. He that hath begun a good work in you will complete it. He will do it. We have his word on that. Uh, verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. God knows the situation. God knows that he, he knew that God, David knew that God knew he needed saving. That's the first step in salvation, isn't it? It's to help us to understand that we need to understand that we're sinners, that we need saving. We can't save ourselves. David looked at this situation and he said, I can't save myself out of this. I'm outnumbered probably eight to one. There's no way that I'm going to save myself out of this. God has, have, has to save me. Only God can do it. God, I can't look to anybody else. There's nobody else that's going to help me here. Only you can do this, and I'm trusting you that you will do this. God always ultimately triumphs. He will put to shame uh, those that are seeking after David. And he talks about God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now, the thing I find interesting here is that I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and I've used the ESV now for a number of years. And when I first began reading the ESV, the thing I noticed right away is the people that wrote the ESV love the exclamation point. I, when I started reading the ESV, I thought, there are lots of exclamation points here in this. Now, if you look at other versions, they're not there. They are here. And I think it adds a tremendous amount to what is being said here. In this particular psalm, there's ten exclamation points. And I think it helps convey what David is saying. You know, I, I can't just read this. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That isn't what David is saying. David is saying, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness, exclamation point. We need to understand God's great love for us. We need to understand God's great faithfulness to 
to us, that he will send this out uh, to us. It's a great proclamation that David is making here. He's saying that, God, that God's love never changes. His faithfulness is at all times. In this difficulty, David knows this, not only in his head, because see, I think that's part of the problem for us, that we quite often, we know it in the head. You know, if I asked you, yes, does God love you? And is he faithful? And, you know, all of us would say, yes, I know that. How about in the heart? How about when the difficulties come, when the trials are there? Do you really know it? Do you really know God's love? Do you really believe it? Does God really love me? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Okay, this, oh, mercy. Um, this uh, leads us to the third point, uh, which I'm going to skip over verse 5 because I'm going to do that with verse 11 because they're the, they're the same. And I'm going to start with verse 7. And verses 7 through 11 are the third point, which are proclamations. David makes a series of proclamations here, and you're going to see a lot of exclamation points through these verses here. He says, verse uh, 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Uh, He repeats it for emphasis. How can his heart be steadfast? Because his heart's been changed. Our hearts have been changed. God has given us a new heart. My old heart was probably not steadfast. But the new heart God has given us, that heart is steadfast. And he's so excited here in verse 7, he bursts out in song. I will sing and make melody. He, excuse me, he has written this psalm so that we can sing it. So that when we're in situations like David, we can sing this song with him. I have absolutely zero musical talent. Can't play anything, can't sing. Well, I sing loud, that's all. I can't sing well, but I, I admire people that can do it. People that have musical talent, I do admire. Especially somebody like this that can take something and put it into a song. Quite often listening to the radio, I'll hear a song and I thought, oh man, that is exactly how I'm feeling. That, I, that's exactly what I would like to say, except I don't have the talent to say it like they say it. So it's perfectly okay to look at the Psalms. And when you're in a difficult situation, find the Psalm like 50, 57, read it through, read it through to God. That's your song to him. David meant this song to be shared and for us to look at, to, for us to benefit from. Verse 8, he says, Awake my glory. Now here, if my version of uh, of this has a note that says, or my whole being instead of glory. Another translation I looked at uh, said, Awake, O my soul. I like that. I like that because think back to verse 4. What does he say about his soul? My soul is in the midst of lions. Verse 6. Six, my soul was bowed down. What he's saying to his soul is, awake my soul. Soul, don't keep looking at the things around us. See God. Understand his greatness and majesty and glory. So, awake my soul. Wake up to, 
the greatness and glory of God. He says, wake up, harp and lyre. He's got these musical instruments with him. And he says, help me in this song of praise that I'm going to write. Help me as I come up with a song to sing about God. Help me in glorifying God. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to get up before the dawn. Because dawn is significant. What With a new day, there's what? New opportunities. There's the chance that things are going to be different. There's a, there's a new expectation with the dawn. I'm going to be up before the dawn to awaken the dawn. Verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Now, when we first started coming down here, Jim asked me to speak, and uh, I spoke then about missions because of our involvement in missions through the years. Now, I'm sure all of you remember that sermon just very well. No, I, I have no illusions about that. That's all right. But the thing that I said in that sermon was that missions is not just a New Testament concept, that missions didn't come up with the Apostle Paul saying, well, I think this is a good idea that we do missionary trips. No, this is, missions is a very much an Old Testament concept. That's what David is saying here. I want the peoples to know. I want all the nations to know how great our God is. He said, I'm going to sing to you among the peoples. I'm going to sing praises to you among the nations. Verse 10, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens in your faithfulness to the clouds. Now, that's kind of a repeat of verse 3, because he's talking again about God's faithfulness and about God's love here. But here he adds the heavens and the clouds. And I think what he's trying to do is get an idea in our minds of the vastness of God's love, the vastness and greatness of God's faithfulness. Now, I thought... When I thought of this, I thought of a song, and it's called the, the Love of God is Greater Far. And the third verse says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Now I should probably pause here because probably some of the younger kids are saying, what in the world is he talking about? And a scribe and a quill and ink and parchment, what is all that? Well, I don't have the time to explain. I'll let your parents explain that to you on the way home. But just to understand what the writer of that song is saying is that if you had an unlimited amount of paper and if all the, whatever it is, one or two billion Christians here in this world had an unlimited amount of pens and we began all writing about the love of God we would run out of paper and pens before we could run out of all we could say about the vastness of God's love for us. We need to grasp that, the greatness of God's love to us. And then 
He comes to the chorus. Again, verse 5 and verse 11 are the same. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Be exalted. You are a great and majestic God. David wants everyone to see the glory and greatness of God. I'm going to make an application here. I'm going to ask you to do something. Beautiful sunny day out there today. So you can do this when you go outside. Or you can do it later in the day if if you choose to. But I want to ask you to look up into the sky. And when you look up into the sky, you're going to do something probably pretty much automatically. You're going to put your hand up. And you're going to put your hand up in between what? Your eyes and the sun. Because of the brightness of the sun, you're going to shield your eyes. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Which one is bigger, your hand or the sun? Now, I think even the smallest child here is going to be able to tell us well, the sun is much bigger than my hand. The sun is, is a hundred times bigger than our earth. I mean, it's a huge thing. So how is it that I can, my hand can block out the sun? Now, I recognize there's distance here. It has a factor in it. But the main reason my hand can block out the sun is what? Because I hold it close enough to my eyes. If I hold, it up, I hold my hand up close to my eyes, I can't see anything but my hand. I think we have a tendency to do the same thing with the problems and difficulties that we face. That we hold them too close. That we look at them and, and we don't see the S-O-N that is there. We don't see God. And I think what David did is he had a right perspective on things. He understood he had a problem, a very real problem. He wasn't ignoring the problem. He wasn't saying, well, it's no big deal. It was a very real problem. But he wasn't holding it here. He was holding it out here so that he could see the sun. He could see God. He could see God in his greatness and glory and majesty. And it is okay to pray about the situation, to ask God for mercy, but just understand that the mercy may not come right away. David prayed this prayer at the beginning of when Saul began chasing him. Saul chased him probably for months. He was running from God's mercy eventually did come, but it didn't come right away. But David still saw God in this. And that gave him hope. He understood that, yes, this is a very real problem, but I'm going to see God and I'm going to praise Him. We need to keep things in perspective. We maybe are in the midst of difficult times and there are very real problems around us, but we have a very real God We need to see him in the midst of this. We need to be trusting him and his greatness, his love for us and his faithfulness. Let me pray. God, you are a great God to us and we rejoice. God, our prayer would be verse 1 again. Be merciful to us, O God. Be merciful to us. For, Lord, we are committing that in 
in you we are going to take refuge. In the shadow of your wings we will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. And we thank you for that and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Before we come to the table, let me just remind you, because I know each week we have new people coming back, so I'm going to go through this again. Um, Everyone is welcome. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're one of his children, you're believing in the gospel, you're welcome to come to this table. If you are not a Christian, we just encourage you to stay in your seat. But we understand that not everyone will be comfortable taking the elements because of what's happening culturally, so that's fine. If you do not want to partake in communion, Please, by all means, stay in your seat. It's just for those who want to come. If you do come, you're coming at your own risk. Uh, Instead of having the uh, men serve us as we've done traditionally in the past, we just have the elements. We'll dismiss uh, row by row, family by family. We'll do this side first and then this side. You can come. You can grab your own bread in a little cup, and then you can come get the grape juice or the wine, and you can dispose of your cup in the garbage container. Okay? So we'll just follow that practice if you... Uh, have not been back yet, haven't seen the procedure, I think you'll pick up on it pretty quickly. Um, I love the sermon. Thank you, Dick, for sharing from Psalm 57, the gospel in the Old Testament. And I saw several touch points as you were preaching to what we have here at the table. I'm not going to go through every one of those, but the thing that maybe stood out most was just the, the limitlessness of God's love, right? And I thought of the verse, no greater love is exists than a man who would lay down his life for his friends. And the fact that Jesus Christ would come into this world as a human being and then would lay down his life, how great is the love of God? How vast the love of God? And we all have our testimonies. We all have our experiences. We have the Word that teaches us. And we could write and write and write and write and never write enough. We would always have something more to say. Because you can't, you can't put into words even the depth and the greatness of God's love for us. So we come to this table, we are reminded of that love. A love that would come into this world, that would take on human flesh, and that would go to the cross and sacrifice. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, gave it to his disciples, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and said, This is the cup of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, so you might be reconciled to God and walk in a new relationship with him, to experience a new covenant, and to live within the confines of this covenant, not just for now, but for eternity. And so as we come this morning to partake of these elements, we celebrate the gospel, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes again for us.
Stand and sing, please. the throne of glory nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious King I will give to you my burden as you give to me your strength Come and fill me with your spirit As I sing to you this praise You deserve the greater glory Overcome with marvels the king of nothing, empty-handed I rejoice, you deserve the greater glory, overcome the joy I sing, by your love I am accepted. Your good and gracious King. Oh, I'd grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend. Safe, secure, and forever. I throw my praise again. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome and lift my voice. To the King in need of nothing. Empty-handed I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome the joy I sing. By your love I am accepted. Your good and gracious King. Good and good. 